clearances, but Clarence Herbert Wollstone, anybody who, who don't know using the Google with that? Okay, well, let me ask you this question. This, one, this question's easier. Fill in the blanks with me, okay, on this. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the red and precious. Jesus loves the of the right. You don't have any problem with that. Well, Clarence Herbert Wollstone is the one who penned those lines. He's the author of the song, Jesus Loves the Little Children, which in itself is kind of, you know, cool that people throughout, at least for the last 150 years, have sung your song. But what's more incredible about it is that he set it to a Civil War military march. The tune is to the song Tramp, 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 which was a song that soldiers would sing to gin up the courage to go into battle and kill other men. And Clarence takes that same tune and he turns it into a song that invites us to go into all the world with the life-saving message of Jesus to do that. He transformed prejudice into missional intent across the world. Our prejudices are always in need of destruction. And before you get defensive, think that I'm accusing anyone else in here of prejudice. I'm just going to talk about my own here. Well, my own and one other person. And that person is Jonah, whose story we're going to look at. So if you have your Bibles or you follow on the version, um, the book of Jonah is an incredible thing to study. We don't have time this morning to read the entire narrative. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to highlight certain verses and then I'm going to fill in the blanks as we go just to refresh our memories with this. So let's start with uh, Jonah 1, first chapter, first verse. The Lord said to Jonah, son of Amity, go immediately to Nineveh, that large capital city, and announce judgment against its people because of their wickedness has come to my attention. Instead, Jonah immediately headed off to Tarshish to escape from the commission of the Lord. And we all know what happens next. He gets on a boat and goes the opposite direction from Nineveh. It does not go well for Jonah, and it does not go well for the sailors on the boat. A huge storm comes up. They're trying to figure this out. Jonah is, is still reluctant to tell them that he is the source of this storm until finally after they've thrown everything off the boat, he comes up and says, look, throw me. I'm the one who caused it. Get rid of me. The storm will die down. They're reluctant to do it. He encourages them. They throw him off into the water where he thinks, well, at least I don't have to go to Nineveh. 
except we know what happens. He is consumed by a large fish in such a manner that it does not allow him to drown or to starve or to be digested. And three days later, he is regurgitated on the shore of the very land that he was fleeing from. So, let's stop for a minute. Now, why do you think Jonah was so reluctant to go to Nineveh? I mean, what's so wrong with Nineveh, right? I mean, it's a tough call. Why go there? Well, maybe it's you would understand or we would understand better if we went into the British Museum. And if you go into the Antiquities Department of the British Museum, you'll see a relief, a carving that they took from the wall of ancient Nineveh, the very place where Jonah went. And on that wall, what you'll see are the returning armies of Sennacherib, who we read about in the Bible in Kings. And his armies are returning, and as they go, their soldiers are taking the heads the decapitated heads of Judeans, and they're piling them up as they return to the city to request to, in order to get their reward for how many Judeans they have beheaded in battle. Nineveh was not a place thought of fondly by the Jews, by any of the Judeans. They were barbarians. They were conquerors. They were afflictors. They were the foreigners. <clears throat> they followed false gods and they created and they committed atrocious war crimes against the people. Jonah had good reason that he didn't want to go to Nineveh. This wasn't just I don't want to I don't want to leave home. This wasn't, oh, it'll be awkward if I preach in the streets. This is walking straight into ISIS camp with a message. When your own family, your friends, your villages have been decimated by ISIS. This was not a threat that Jonah took as theoretical. He had experienced the atrocities of the Ninevite culture. He had good reason not to go. But let's pick this up, skipping down to verse 3. The Lord says to Jonah a second time, so he's got Jonah's attention now. He's got him where he wants him to go. And he says, Go immediately to Nineveh, that large city, and proclaim to it the message I will tell you. So Jonah went immediately to Nineveh, as the Lord had said. Now Nineveh was an enormous city, and it required three days to walk through it. When Jonah began to enter the city one day's, one day's walk, he announced, at the end of 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. The people of Nineveh believed in God, and they declared a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, put on sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Now, wait a minute. Hold on. We, we have books of our Old Testament filled with prophecy. They take chapter and chapter and chapter of things that the prophets would say to convince the people of the Lord's righteousness and judgment. And Jonah gets one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten words. 
at the end of 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. He doesn't even tell them to repent. He doesn't say, woe to you. He doesn't say, God, you're worshiping false gods. Turn to the true God. And you get the idea with the reluctance of Jonah, he probably mumbled this message as he went through. He's walking through the city for three days. Um, at the end of 40 days, <coughs> no, 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 no. Uh, you know, barely, he's so reluctant to deliver this, the shortest of all prophecies we have anywhere in the Bible. And yet look at the response of the people. So it says in, in chapter 3, verse 7, the king, he issued a proclamation and said in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, no human or animal, cattle or sheep is to taste anything. They must not eat or not, they must not drink water. Every person and animal must put on sackcloth and, every, and must cry earnestly to God and everyone must turn from their evil way of living and from the violence that they do. Who knows? Perhaps God might be willing to change his mind and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not die. It's amazing that one of the, the most profound examples of repentance we have in the entire Bible comes from one of the most bloodthirsty rulers that we know of in human history. When God saw their actions, they turned away from their evil way of living. God relented concerning the judgment he had threatened them with. And he did not destroy them. Hallelujah, right? Amen. Party in the streets. Jonah cries out with joy. Yes, this has happened, right? No, not exactly. This displeased Jonah terribly. And he became very angry. The message that he had come to deliver, reluctantly, in a way his message was force-fed um, to the people here. And the messenger was force-fed as well. Um, he gets this response, though, from the people. And it rips him open. He's so angry. And listen to what he says. He prayed to the Lord and he said, Oh Lord, this is just what I thought would happen when I was in my own country. Now we see the real reason why he didn't want to go. He wanted Nineveh destroyed. He wanted those people to suffer. He wanted revenge on them. He wanted fire and brimstone. He wanted children and cattle. He wanted destruction to rain down. It wasn't because he himself was intimidated. It wasn't because he himself was put out. He wanted God to destroy them, and he wanted them destroyed. And this is what he says. I knew that this is what would happen. This is why I tried to prevent by attempting to escape to Tarshish. Because, and listen to this, because I knew that you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in mercy, and one who relents concerning threatens judgments. He's quoting God back to God. 
This is how God is described when he passes before Moses. This is the essence, this is the essence, the name of God. Gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. One who relents concerning threatened judgment. Jonah had, in a way, he had no illusions about the nature and character of God. Jonah knew God's mercy. However, his prejudice, his anger, his hatred kept him from wanting it to be extended to his enemies, to his oppressors. So now, Lord, kill me instead, because I would rather die than live. I will say this, that when we come face-to-face with those prejudices, when we come face-to-face with those deep-seated wounds and angers that we have, oftentimes our own death seems preferable than mercy being shown to those that we hate. Jonah's not unique here. This is not some outlier story. We've all seen it. We're all seeing it in some ways. The vitriol, the poison, the accusations. We have no imagination for those that we oppose, those we feel have wronged us or are, or, or are wrong. In some ways, we would rather die than see mercy shown to those people. And it begs the question then, just how deep is the love and mercy of God? Because if we don't engage this, if we don't answer this, then we can safely sit with our own prejudice. We can safely sit with our own anger, justification of our hatreds. Because we can make God out to be like us instead of vice versa. This is the continual temptation, which we'll talk about in a minute, is for us to create a God in our image who hates the people we hate, loves the people we love. So let's just stop for a minute and ask, well, hold on. Who does God's love extend to? Who does God's mercy extend to? In this, you know the answer, (laughs) but do you want it to be the answer? I know the answer, but so often I don't want it to be the answer. I know the answer is that God's love and mercy extends to everybody. No exclusion for gender, race, nationality, orientation, ability, political party. I know that. I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't want it to be that way. 
I want God to hate the people I hate. I want him to ignore the people that I ignore. I want him to show preference to the people that I show preference to. If there is one clear message in Jonah, however, it is that the reaffirmation that God's love and mercy is indeed for everyone. There couldn't, he couldn't have chosen a more inappropriate people to show kindness to and mercy to than the Ninevites. In this setting, in this story, the only equivalent that we can think of in modern day would be ISIS right now. And indeed, as we'll find out, there's a direct connection to that. We live as Americans with unprecedented wealth, opportunity. I know it doesn't feel like it. I know our individual experience doesn't feel like it. I know we're all hanging under the banner of debt and, and uncertainty and things don't seem like they're getting better and society seems deteriorating, but y'all, just stop for a minute. The fact that you're here, the fact that we're here, we're some of the most rich, we're some of the richest, most well-educated, most well-cared-for people who have ever lived in history. In history. We have more amenities, more opportunities than the vast, vast majority who ever drew a breath. And yet, how many of us feel that way? Instead, we spend our time preoccupied with perceived threats and conflicts of trying to exert power over, trying to control and secure with that. And it leads us to have a heart like Jonah. That, yeah, we know God is merciful. We know he's slow to anger. We know he's compassionate. We know he extends forgiveness. But we want that for us not necessarily for everybody else. And we have to think, and one of the most profound ways to change our thinking is this, is that if I accept that love and compassion, if I accept that, if I truly repent in my heart, and I know that God feels that exact same way about my enemy, about the person that I'm angry with, about the person that I'm opposed to, about the person that I disagree with, about the person who has hurt me, abandoned me, defamed me, opposes me, then how am I supposed to think about that person? How am I supposed to respond to that person with that? And that's where it gets into the second part, the cost to us. We like to think of God's mercy and love in terms of something that heals, of something that gives, of something that provides. And it does, it does, it does all those things. But that's the very fact. Because it does those things, it also costs us to respond. There are two very common mistakes that it comes, that that happen when we talk about God's will. What does God want us to do? How does God want us to live? The first one is, is incredibly prevalent. It's that if it's of God, it'll be easy. <laughs> yes, right. Thank you, Peter. That if it's of God, it'll just happen 
organically. That's a buzzword these days, right? Is it'll be organic. That if it's authentic, you know, it's just going to happen. It's kind of the open door, closed door theology way, right? Well, the door's open. The path is easy. That must be God. And God wants me to be happy. God's highest goal for me is to be happy. Therefore, the thing that makes me happy must be God. And we have become drunk on this prosperity gospel. Because that's essentially what it is. Is that if I follow God, if I'm somewhat moral, if I pray the right prayer, if I hang out with the right people, I do the right things, I show up at Grace and listen to John ramble on and on and on every Sunday. Well, then God owes me happiness, health, and if not wealth, at least comfort with that. Listen, that's preaching in every church, just about every church. It's, it's, in a way, it's, it's hard not to preach that. We're so rife with that. Now, there's an equally opposite, there's an opposite but equally wrong interpretation that comes. Less popular, but still out there. Which says, hey, if it's going to be God, you're going to suffer. Like God is the greatest cosmic killjoy there is. He's going to make you marry the person you don't want to marry. He's going to make you go to Africa as a missionary. He's going to make you not have any of the stuff you want. He's going to make you associate with people you'd rather not associate with. And it's just going to be one long drums along the Volga. You know, dun, 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 dun. Life is going to be miserable. And if it's miserable, that's God. Because that's God's nature and character. I don't think I have to emphasize that we need to reject both of those extremes. But I do want to say this. As we offer an alternative. Is that often that alternative does involve suffering. And maybe not necessarily the material kind. But I think it will do that. But I think more in the image or suffering in the way of giving up our prejudices, giving up our preferences. There is a very real death to self that comes to welcome someone that you're scared of, to welcome someone that you don't like, to welcome someone who smells different, looks different, acts different, doesn't share the same preferences you have as a sister and a brother. Not just to tolerate them. Not just to accommodate them, but to pursue them. Not just to, not just to kind of reluctantly acknowledge them, but to welcome them. I can't do that in and of myself. And I'm, I like to think of myself as a fairly tolerant human being. 
fairly outgoing. I'm, I'm an extrovert. I like being around different people. I'm adventurous. I'm explorers. But I can tell you, I've got limits. And those limits often are hard and fast on my limits of people that I will show mercy to, show love to, go beyond just tolerating or accommodating, but actually pursue. There is a death to self that has to happen. See, Jonah was unaccepted. He was unwilling to make that. He ran from it. God brought him back. Oftentimes, God lets us run. God will let us run. He won't send a storm. He won't send a fish. He'll let us run from that. And so we have to find by the power of the Holy Spirit a way to allow ourselves to be turned around and head back towards those people that we're scared of, that we hate, that we're opposed to. And that's what it cost us. It cost us ourself often in terms of our prejudices and preferences, comforts and conveniences, our very identity. It cost us our idols. See, God is the God of all people. God is God of everywhere. There is no place God isn't. God is at work everywhere. He is at work within ISIS right now. Do you believe that? He is at work. His Holy Spirit is at work among those people, whoever those people are for you. He wants to show mercy and love to them as much as he has shown to you, as much as he has shown to me. And that destroys our tribal deity. That destroys a nationalistic God who prefers one nation over the next, one political system over the next. He tears it down. So let's bring this back to Jesus. How are Jonah and Jesus connected in this? Do you know Jonah was one of the most quoted books by Jesus? And it's interesting because Jonah, Jonah shouldn't be in the Bible. It really shouldn't. If you look at all the prophets, go through all the prophets, read Kings, read Chronicles, read Amos, read Isaiah, read all these different stuff. It's all about the God of Israel working with, the God, with, with God's people, with Israel. And if another nation comes in, God blesses that other nation either one, to make Israel jealous... I know none of us have done that in here, dated someone to make someone else jealous. You can confess later. Um, So God would bless another nation to make Israel jealous, or he'd bless them to punish Israel. But it was always all about Israel. You read the prophets, read them, read the Old Testament, it's all about Israel. I mean, yeah, there's this continuing theme of you're supposed to be a blessing to the nations, you're supposed to be an example of light to the world, But really, most of the prophets are mostly concerned with Israel. Israel's the hero until we get to Jonah. And then this book is thrown in. And Israel's really nowhere to be mentioned. And the representative of Israel is hard-hearted, disobedient, self-centered, and refuses to participate in what God is doing to share in the joy that God has. 
And the heroes of the story are the bad guys. They're the ones that repent. And then Jesus somehow picks up on this and quotes Jonah time and time again. The parallels between Jonah's story and the life of Jesus are quite numerous. In some ways, they're identical. Other ways offer stark contrast. Jesus references Jonah a number of times. He compares himself to Jonah and is indeed a prophet sent to a rebellious people. His message is welcomed by the last people you would think that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would be concerned with. Jesus' message is, is welcomed by the women, the outcasts, the foreigners, the aliens, the diseased. Likewise, Jesus will spend three days in the deep only to emerge alive. But there are more differences than similarities. And all these differences make surprising the very difference between Jonah and Jesus. Jesus emphasizes this in the different responses between his Jewish hearers, between the the responses Jewish hearers offered and that of the Ninevites. The people of Nineveh accepted Jonah's brief, terse, and reluctant preaching humbly, immediately, and completely. Think about that. The example of how to respond to God's message was exemplified by the Ninevites. As compared to the warnings he gave to the present generation he was preaching to. Indeed, Jesus said this in Matthew 12, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Although Jesus doesn't say it explicitly, the implication is unmistakable. His own generation, by and large, did not heed his message. Grace Church, the question before us is the same. Will we repent? Will we die to our prejudices? Will we get over the limits to our own love and mercy and accept the love and mercy, the limitless love and mercy of God? Right now, there is a battle being fought for Nineveh. Because Nineveh, as we know it today, is the town of Mosul in Iraq. Do you know that? The very town that's been debated in presidential debates about what's going on, soldiers from all over the world are fighting and bombing and dying. Civilians are being chased from their homes in Nineveh right now. Listen, this is not just some Bible story. This is not some moralistic lesson. We're living in this time right now. And we have the same question we have the same question that Jonah faced and how we'll respond. This is an old struggle, y'all. This is an old struggle. The desire to bend God to our own designs and dreams, 
to the deep pull to be satisfied with our own comfort, security, and provision, to be satisfied with receiving God's love and mercy for ourselves and for those around us to the exclusion of those we perceive as threats, unworthy, damned, and deserving of damnation. If there is anything that Christ teaches us, it is that this attitude and these actions are totally incomparable with being his followers. We're going to pray. Today is a, is the, a day, a call to prayer for the persecuted church. There's, there is an ancient and very real church in Nineveh, in Mosul, in Iraq. And they're getting the worst of it all. They're being bombed on one side by forces hostile to, to ISIS, and they're being persecuted by ISIS when they're there. So as we come to the table today, we're going to stand in solidarity with them. But we can only do that if we have repented, if we have truly repented of our prejudices, if we give up this us versus them mentality, if we let go of the vitriol and the vile, if we let go of the accusations, if we let go of our own desire for comfort and security and accept that following Jesus means dying to self and offering the same love and mercy to everyone that he has offered to us. That is expressed at this table. That's why I talked about earlier tomorrow we'll have this table open as well as we vote because that vote, while maybe necessary, depending on your convictions, is not to be your ultimate allegiance. That's not to be your deepest identity. As followers of Jesus, our deepest identity, our ultimate allegiance, is to the king and his kingdom that transcends flags and borders and nationalities. Classes and races and genders, ethnicities, transcends all that. Now, I know I can stand up here and say this coherently, but I'm genuinely terrified as I speak these words. Because I know how far in my own heart I have to go. I am genuinely terrified that my own prejudice, my own blindness, my own selfishness will keep me from extending the love of Jesus in anywhere close to how much he's extended it to me. The only rational and legitimate response I can think is to come to this table and humbly take of what he's done. Is to recognize that the ultimate source of this is from him not from my own will, not from my own theology, not from my own obedience, but comes from him. And that's what I invite all of us to do today. If the worship team will come up. I'm going to offer a prayer for us and for the persecuted church. Lucian is going to be at the back, if you, if you feel the burden to pray more for those who are being oppressed and persecuted, whether that's in North Korea, whether that's in China, whether that's in Iraq or Afghanistan, 
whether that's in Indonesia, wherever it is, Lucian will be back there and you can pray additionally with him. But for all of us, y'all, we must at this time stand as witnesses against the hate, against the exclusion, against the oppression. That standing, that witness starts with kneeling at this table and humbly accepting the gift that Jesus gave for all of us. God of heavens, slow in anger, great in compassion, extending mercy from generation to generation. God of all the world, present in Iraq and Afghanistan, South Korea, North Korea, Vietnam, Fayetteville. You are God of all creation, every woman and man, every child, adult. There is no limit to your love and mercy. There is no limit to your kingdom. God, renew within us our citizenship in that kingdom. Forgive us, God. Forgive us where we have taken our the blessing you have given us of comfort and security of wealth claimed it as some kind of birthright to the exclusion of our brothers and sisters and transform this body transform me God transform us to reflect more fully your image by the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of your kingdom In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior.